Welcome fellow survivors to another episode of A Rail Tour of Post-Apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur exologist Richard Oliver. Last week we visited the remarkable city of monuments built by a time controller Sebastian. Unfortunately, as the train sped us to safety, the city was being consumed by fighting, leading to surely the single greatest act of destruction of art and architecture in the history of the world. A terrible loss, but for most of us on the train these precious buildings had already been lost in the great chaos that was the apocalypse. We did gain something from the destruction of the city, and I don't just mean whatever Annette Vasquez's cultural treasure seekers saved, but the woman who had escaped the battle. She had briefly held my assistant Knox hostage, which led to the tragic loss of a bottle of gin, but I was prepared to put all that behind us in the interest of friendship. The woman had been leading a platoon of Napoleonic soldiers that had taken refuge in Sebastian City. In their timeline, they had been part of Emperor Napoleon's victorious invasion of England, but the timeline had changed and they found themselves stranded in the wrong timeline during the apocalypse. I had assumed the woman was French, but she quickly disabused me of this idea. She was Polish. Her name was Zofia Sitko, an illegitimate child of a Polish nobleman and a Russian serf. She had left home to fight in Napoleon's Polish legions, and while she was never properly part of the army, she fought for Napoleon in whatever capacity he found for her. Sophia had been fiercely loyal to Napoleon, believing him to be the Poles' best chance of restoring their homeland, which had greedily been carved up between Russia, Austria and Prussia. She had been spy, assassin, courtesan, saboteur and more. It had been quite a shock for Sophia leaving 19th century Napoleonic Britain and a moment later finding herself in apocalyptic England. Sophia and the battalion of French soldiers who had come with her wandered England, being preyed upon by the self-appointed time police and all the dangers of the island. Eventually they found Sebastian City and settled down there. Then even that had been taken away. All of the Napoleonic soldiers had been killed in the fighting. From what she had told me, most of the other line runners, the name for people whose timeline had ceased to exist but they haven't, had met similar fates. Sophia had apologised profusely for taking Knox hostage and for causing the destruction of the bottle of gin, and after that all three of us got along like a house on fire. Technically there's a procedure for joining the train, forms that need to be filled in, and a committee that approves applications. But really, if you just hang about long enough, people get used to seeing you. Aside from Sophia's welcome arrival, we were all very excited as we had found a real city. And this time, it was a real city. It had electricity and running water and people. Lots and lots of people. I can't begin to describe how happy it made me feel to finally find a substantial population. Our scouts had estimated it at 100,000 people. I've mentioned before that the possibility exists that the central government authority may simply decide to abandon the country, evacuate whoever they can and put their resources elsewhere. But finding something like this suggested that England was a viable country. We have a diverse crew and passenger manifest, but there are very few actual English people amongst them, so I didn't really have anyone to celebrate with apart from Zofia. She could relate to the situation because, of course, her homeland had been destroyed as well. So when the train made its way into the station, I can admit being very happy, and yes, that is a euphemism for drunk. Attentive listeners will have picked up on the fact that I do enjoy a drink now and then, but there are many different types of drunk, and arriving in this city was a very happy drunk. A crowd had gathered to greet us, and there was even a brass band. The captain, not a woman who likes to be outdone, 
had donned her best uniform with her most impressive captain's hat and stepped heartily onto the platform. The mayor of the city was here to greet us, an elderly, rather corpulent man, but it was very reassuring that he was a mayor, not a president or king or emperor of all lands, as the more grandiose the name, the more unhinged they tend to be. The title of mayor was suitably humble. I was actually meant to be part of the captain's entourage for the greeting, but upon seeing the state I was in, she thought that wasn't for the best and I am a big enough person to admit she was right. After I had sobered up a little, I joined another party from the train who were to be given the tour. The brass band had left, and we had to make do of a councillor rather than the mayor, but they had refreshments and transportation, so a dozen or so people who made up our party piled on into the bus they had provided and set off. There is a subtle etiquette to these situations. When a city is pleased to have re-established contact and they are happy to see us, which is depressingly rare, they will shower you with gifts and show you their monuments and attractions. The gifts, monuments and attractions are all going to be objectively terrible. I have previously been presented with a single small potato that had clearly been contaminated by radiation, but was highly prized by the population. What you need to remember is, these people have very little and have witnessed unspeakable horrors and endured terrible ordeals. The very fact that they have anything to offer or show you is amazing. Basically, be polite and look impressed. My first impression of the city was that it resembled how I imagined many Victorian cities. It was dark, it was dirty, most of the people were quite poor, but everyone was being very industrious and there was even, and I hesitate to use this compound word, steampunk about it. But undeniably, their gifts and monuments weren't half bad. The captain and her underage had been given the last bottle of champagne that had been carefully stored for a special occasion, and we had to make do with surprisingly serviceable whiskey that the locals made themselves. As our bus pootled about the city, the councillor explained everything we were seeing, from the city hall to the bowling green. I asked the councillor about the sheer Victorianness of the whole place, and he congratulated me on noticing. After all, he said, Was the Victorian era not the apex of British power and culture? I didn't say anything else, but could think of a dozen different groups of people who might think Victorian Britain was not the utopia the councillor painted. The councillor waxed lyrical about the Victorian spirit the leaders of the city had tried to instill. Parsinomy, moral values, hard work. He continued until we reached another Victorian feature, the coal mine. Apparently the city used whatever fuel they could get their hands on, and the area had once been a productive coal mining region. There was a great deal of busy machinery and tired looking workers heading to and fro. Isaac Mendelin, a geologist from the train who had joined our party, was eager to see more of the mine, because, you know, he liked rocks and stuff. So the bus stopped and we all got off. I had no intention of venturing underground, but took the opportunity to stretch my legs. Mendelin and some of the others went to explore the mine, but most of our group stayed on the surface. There was suddenly a loud whistle, which appeared to signal some break in the working, and the miners could take a few minutes rest. It was then that I noticed two things. First, the number of miners working with what appeared to be serious injuries, and second, the presence of armed guards. I began to formulate some questions about this, but was interrupted by a sudden implosion. A tall building behind me had chosen that inopportune moment to implode, and I do mean implode, not explode. 
I didn't really see what happened, but could tell from the results. The building was destroyed, collapsed neatly in on itself. A dust cloud was thrown up, which left me covered in small debris, but unharmed. Around me people were running, but as I didn't know where the danger would come from, I made what seemed to be the sensible decision and stayed still. I was almost instantly proven wrong as I heard bursts of gunfire around me. The dust cloud still lingered and I could see vague shapes fighting. I decided it best to run in any direction and hope I wasn't hit. I picked a direction and ran through the dust. A few seconds in I collided painfully with someone and fell back to the ground. The heavy form of one of the guards was still on top of me and I tried to push him away when her face hove into view. Well, I couldn't actually see much of the face as it was hidden behind the Corinthian helmet. The Corinthian dragged the guard off me and thrust a spear into his chest. I lay perfectly still, perhaps in the hope that this attacker shared the same visual difficulties T-Rexes supposedly had. And it seemed to work. The Corinthian yanked his spear out from his victim and strode away, and I lost him in the dust. But a second later there was another gunshot, followed by a brief but agonised scream. I slowly got to my hands and knees, not sure what to do next. The dust cloud was finally beginning to subside, and I saw the Corinthian killing two more gods with amazing agility and grace. I had finally formulated the groundbreaking plan of crawling away in the opposite direction, when I was hauled roughly to my feet. A gun was pressed under my chin, and I did what I always did when this happens, and just tried to stay still. I realised it was one of the guards who seemed to be using me as a human shield, keeping me between him and the Corinthian. I am perfectly happy to act as a human shield, but only if I am an effective shield, to wit the attacker is invested in keeping me alive and so simply won't shoot me. As the Corinthian and I were strangers and all I knew about him was that he had a love of classical Greek armour and killing people, I felt that my use as a human shield was limited. The guard was nervously jabbering. Stay back. Stay back or I'll kill him. I swear I will. The Corinthian paced back and forth, but came no closer. Then he stopped and took a small step forward. Stay back or I'll... The guard was interrupted by the light that the Corinthian had thrown. The guard made the mistake of pointing the gun at the Corinthian for a split second and paid for it with his life. The guard sagged against me before he slowly slid to the ground. The Corinthian walked over to the body and pulled the knife from the dead guard. He looked me up and down. Are you hurt? he asked. I mumbled something along the lines that it was okay, but the Corinthian wasn't convinced. You were knocked down, and then the business with the knife. Anywhere that hurts? I hadn't really thought about it, but he was right. My shoulder ached, but that was all. I'd also be concerned about PTSD. This must have been very distressing for you. I now took the time to properly take in this peculiar man. He was short, but looked strong and athletic. His face was hidden by his helmet. He wore an assortment of clothes, cheap trainers with overalls, and on top of that his armour, which, while being ancient in design, looked relatively modern. To complete his armour, he carried a long spear and a shield, as well as a number of other knives and small weapons kept on a belt that ran from shoulder to hip. He looked back at me. I'd advise you to see a doctor at your earliest convenience. The Corinthian grabbed the guard, who had so thoughtlessly hidden behind me, and dragged him across the ground. Then he did the same with the other guards. I realised that the Corinthian had killed 15 men. 
Fifteen men armed with an assortment of guns, and he had killed them all with a spear and a few knives. Eventually, he had arranged the guards into three rows of fives, and then withdrew some cards and a pen from one of his many pockets. He crouched by each body, wrote out a card, and then placed it on it. He then walked back over to me and drew another card from a different pocket and held it out. Slowly, I reached out and took it. This is what the card read. Dear Citizen, You have my sincere apologies for involving you in my terrorist activities. It is my hope to only target the government and their armed forces. In the event that I have impacted on your physical or mental health in any way, please email me on and I will arrange compensation. Yours sincerely, J. McIntyre. P.S. Feedback of all kinds is always welcome. Please let me know how I can improve. I was slightly stunned by the card, and I asked if he had given these cards to the dead gods. Oh no, he replies. They're dead. I just left the card explaining what happened to them, and why. I list the cause of death, weapon used, that sort of thing. It makes it easier for the coroner. Anyway, I need to be getting on. This mine won't sabotage itself. He gave a cheery wave, collected a spear and shield, and set off down the mine. I stood for several minutes replaying the incident in my head, and would have carried on doing so had three vehicles not arrived, from which heavily armed soldiers emerged, followed by the mayor. He walked over to me as the soldiers fanned out. Was it him? he asked. Was he here? Who? I asked. McIntyre, said the mayor. He went into the mine. The mayor shouted orders and the soldiers charged into the mine. Who is he? I asked. The mayor sighed and rubbed the bridge of his nose. McIntyre, he's a bloody hero. Births, deaths and marriages. In an effort to provide more upbeat news items, my assistant Nock has suggested a regular section on notable births, deaths and marriages. Normally I discourage Knox from showing any initiative, but eventually his pestering got the better of me and I agreed to give it a try. Births The Royal Football of Her Royal Highness Elizabeth, Queen of Denmark, Sienna Calois and Alexander de Champ announced the birth of their first daughter, Johanna. Princess Joanna is now the heir to the Crown of Denmark, the last remaining pre-apocalypse royal family in Europe. The three parents said they were overjoyed at the birth. Grand Hegemon of South America, Carlos Maruna, has celebrated the birth of his 12th child, Oscar. This is of particular importance as this will allow the Grand Hegemon to stage his 12-player fight-to-the-death tournament that will decide which of his children will succeed him. Oscar was given the fearsome nickname, the Devourer of Souls, by his proud and profoundly disturbed father, but obviously will be an extreme disadvantage if this tournament is held in the next few years. Finally, according to the Brotherhood of Eternal Evil, the Antichrist has been born. Again, this one in Seville, Spain. This is the fourth Antichrist the group has acclaimed this year, and the 15th in the last decade. The previous 14 were defrocked after being found to be ordinary children. The Brotherhood that announced they were definitely sure that this child was the real Antichrist, and their previous mistakes have been down to, quote, an eagerness to see signs where there were none. End quote. And now, back to the narrative. Jacob McIntyre was a hero. You might even call him a superhero. 
In fact, you might go even further. You might go so far as to say he was a sensible proponent of modest health and safety legislation. Let me explain. The city had long acted as a magnet, drawing in refugees and other fleeing people seeking the meagre protection a city could offer. But the safety in numbers was offset by the dangers such a large population attracted, and the city had dealt with everything from marauding gangs of looters to man-eating mermaids. They had felt in a constant state of siege, and then Jacob McIntyre had arrived. He had come alone and talked little. No one thought much of him, but when the next attack came, McIntyre was in the thickest of the fighting. Even back then, he was amazing. Almost superhumanly quick, with scarcely a thought for his own safety. For nearly ten years, he had thought of everything that came at the city, and everyone in the city agreed they would be lost without him. The people saw him as their hero, and that hero with a capital H, and they presented him with the armour and shield befitting a true hero. What was even more remarkable was that as well as acting as the city's champion and defender, he worked a full-time job in one of the local farms. How then had this hero found himself in a vicious war with the city's authorities? It was a tragic story of the struggle between an idealistic hero and the vested interests of powerful men. You see, the problem started when the attacks of monsters began to recede, when the gangs no longer fought the city as easy prey, and for long periods of time, McIntyre's special skills were not needed. For what is a hero to do when there are no more monsters to slay? This particular hero began to think about what other ways there were to help people. McIntyre was not just strong and quick, he was clever and inventive. After all, he had designed numerous weapons and defences from scratch. He quickly realised that in the last 10 years, more people had died from drinking unclean water than had been killed by werewolves. The influenza epidemic that had raged through the city had killed far more than the terrible attacks by the Grand Warlord Cain and his followers. In fact, McIntyre could think of dozens of men, women and children who'd been injured or killed working in factories and mines. McIntyre decided that while he would still kill a werewolf if it got too close to the city, his first and foremost duty was clear, to improve the amenities and infrastructure of the city. After several months cataloguing the various problems and drawing up a list of practical measures that could be implemented, whilst keeping on top of both his farming and monster-slaying duties, he presented them to the mayor and the city council. They responded by trying to have him killed, which both the mayor and the city council have since agreed was an overreaction. Ever since then, McIntyre had been an admitted terrorist, but doing it in a particularly health and safety conscious way. First of all, McIntyre only targeted the members of the government and their soldiers and guards. He didn't want to hurt anyone who he didn't hold responsible. This also meant no guns. Guns have an annoying tendency to hit people other than their intended target. Even the weapons McIntyre did use were adapted for his purposes. Instead of blowing up government buildings, he imploded them when they were empty. His spears and knives were custom designed with a feature to make the blades red hot. Why? So they cauterized wounds and didn't lead to blood spurting everywhere. Additionally, McIntyre used weapons tipped with sedatives or fast-acting poisons to reduce the suffering of those he did fight. As I found out myself, 
McIntyre went to great lengths not to hurt bystanders and left his quaint apology cards for the inconvenience he caused. Even his acts of sabotage were carefully arranged. For example, the coal mine. He had sabotaged old and dangerous machinery. Machinery which could be replaced, but the authorities had dragged their feet. When workers were pushed to work longer shifts, arguably dangerously long shifts, he would sabotage equipment to slow down production. After his attacks, McIntyre would leave detailed reports about what he had done and why, using cost-benefit analysis, risk assessments and more to show why he was justified in his actions. McIntyre was very effective. The government was seemingly powerless to stop him. Unsurprisingly, the vast majority of the population actively supported McIntyre. He was their hero after all, and he was good at it. The government put his death toll of guards, soldiers and government officials in triple figures, and the cost of the damage was astronomical. In fact, it seemed like McIntyre's damage was so extensive it would have been cheaper to adopt his measures in the first place. But it was beyond that now. The authorities had taken the position that as a young government, their authority was weak. To give in to the demands of a terrorist would have completely undermined them. The real question was why they hadn't agreed to McIntyre's proposals in the first place. Well, to upgrade machinery, to make working conditions better, to improve sanitation. It all costs money. And one of the first things that had been re-established in the city was a working capitalist economic model. Sometimes people forget that along with Victorian ingenuity, determination and drive was workhouses, tuberculosis and child labour. Yes, in this city there were rich and poor, and those who were rich were unwilling to spend what they had to improve the lot of the poor. On my travels, I have seen just about every form of government and economy imaginable, from magical anarchist collectivism to uber-capitalism mega-wealth communities. The success of these different ideas often seems to depend on the flexibility of those in charge. Too much of one ideology leads to disaster. And the desire of the rich to be as rich as humanly possible had started this war. I was in the meeting where the mayor explained all this to our captain and some of the other leading figures from the train, and I listened in rapt attention, as I've always been a fan of superheroes. And McIntyre was a superhero. The mayor seemed very depressed about the whole affair, but brightened up at the end. So, how can you help us deal with McIntyre? he asked. It became clear that the mayor expected help from the train and or the central government authority in resolving this issue, and it seemed that the mayor favoured a resolution that meant McIntyre's death. The captain was quite offended by this, stating quite simply that we were not a death squad. It turned out the real reason for the panic was that there was an election soon. While types of government vary wildly, there is something that is true of virtually all the post-apocalyptic democracies. When it comes to terms of office, they are either very short or very long. When they are very short, sometimes just a matter of weeks, the office holder never amasses too much power and can only do so much. The idea, when they are very long, is that these societies are on the brink and frequent elections would make governing more difficult. This city had chosen very infrequent elections. It had been nearly 15 years since the last election, and with the majority of the population behind McIntyre, it was very likely a change was coming. Naturally, this terrified the government. They were scared of McIntyre now. What would it be like when they were out of power? And what if McIntyre was elected? Technically, a fugitive couldn't run for office. 
but if he achieved the majority of right-hand votes, then surely the government was doomed. But what about the CGA? yelled the mayor. The captain then explained the policy of the CGA. You must understand, mayor. The CGA does not recognise your authority or your laws. In fact, they don't recognise any authority other than their own. While they have a policy of peaceful and mutually beneficial absorption of territory, they can handle this matter however they see fit. Speaking from experience, they will deal with whoever is the recognised government. Right now, that is you. If that changes, they will deal with your replacements. Besides, the policies of the CGA would more closely align with the system Mr McIntyre is advocating. They very much approve of sensible health and safety. We'll fight you, said the mayor half-heartedly. The captain laughed. You can't deal with one man? You think the CGA will be scared of you? I left with the captain. It should be said that when the CGA encounters real governments, 99% of the time the community is desperate to be absorbed by the CGA. Occasionally, when there is some reluctance, negotiations are entered into. Only very rarely has there been conflict, and most of those cases are because of the extreme policies of these governments, which the CGA would stop, such as those of William Astor, known to his people as the Blood King, or the forever chain cult of Jane Harlow, who regularly took part in human sacrifice. Suffice it to say, whenever there has been conflict, the CGA has triumphed easily. The captain wisely thought it best to leave the city as soon as possible. The CGA would easily handle the city, but the train did not have the resources to fight them. Even though swift retaliation and destruction would follow any attack on the train, people did not always act with their own best interests at heart. Personally, I had rather hoped we would stay a little longer, as I was eager to meet McIntyre. As I said, I have always been obsessed with superheroes, and this was a chance to meet a real one. As a boy and nervous refugee, being shuttled around from one place to the other, constantly being threatened by one kind of monster or another, narrowly avoiding death, the idea of a superhero was very appealing. In the long run, I had been saved by the CGA and their more bureaucratic brand of heroism, but part of me still wanted to let them be superheroes. After all, during the apocalypse there were a number of people who had developed actual superpowers, and not one of them matched up to my idea of a superhero. We reached the train without incident and I retired to my carriage, but was quite surprised that we didn't set off immediately. On the way back, the captain had been insistent that we would leave as soon as possible. What were we waiting for? There was a knock at my door which provided an answer. It was Lizzie Cooper, the Wade Adler Company's social media consultant. She did not look happy, which for her was practically dereliction of duty. She was supposed to be the unflappable, ever cheerful and friendly face of the Wade Adler Company. I heard a story that once she stood on a nail and still maintained her joyful demeanour. Lizzie had a favour to ask of me. It turned out that she thought it would be a good idea to interview McIntyre, and she could blog about it, or tweet, or whatever it is that she does. Using her expertise, she had managed to track down McIntyre, but he wouldn't consent to an interview. Not with her, anyway. Yes, it turned out McIntyre listened to my podcast and was a fan. Lizzie asked me to do her a favour and interview McIntyre, and then both of us would publish the results. I could hardly say no. Births, deaths and marriages continued. Deaths. 
Now, despite deaths being both numerous and horrific, I have been asked to limit this part to one death. Last week saw the death of the great sea beast Magda Merstrom that inhabited the Bering Strait. The beast was held in great affection to many as its massive tentacles pulled many a pirate ship and aquatic invader to the bottom of the sea and actually left coastal communities considerably safer as well as Acton as a great tourist attraction. The beast, colloquially known as Maggie, will be greatly missed. Marriages Two high-profile stars tied the knot this week. Movie star and acting great Walker Davis married world-renowned monster hunter Cynthia Claude. The pair met on the set of the film Until Morning, in which Davis played the king of the vampires and Claude was a consultant. Of course, as we all know, a real vampire king attacked the set and Claude went into action. And the rest is history. The ceremony was closed to the press, but it is known that a flock of harpies did disrupt the wedding during the cutting of the wedding cake, forcing Claude to dispatch the monsters with the knife that was meant for the cake. Good luck to the happy couple. And now, back to the narrative. I found the microphone and recording equipment we have for conducting interviews off the train, which I never take off the train as it is far too valuable. But this would be an exception. I briefly even considered taking my assistant Knox to make us look more professional, but in the end I decided against it. My notepad was full of questions from McIntyre, and I will admit this interview was quickly becoming a fan meeting their hero rather than serious journalism. But I didn't care. I was going to meet a real superhero. Lizzie had insisted on coming with me, and we set off just as it was getting dark. I asked Lizzie just how she had found McIntyre. After all, the mayor had presumed been trying for years. Lizzie had tracked McIntyre down to an underground cave network, which had long been suspected as being his base, but no one had dared enter the maze of caves which McIntyre had no doubt booby-trapped. Apparently, Lizzie had stood at the entrance to the caves and simply shouted out what she wanted, and a moment later, a crumpled piece of paper flew from the caves, which explained briefly he would only be interviewed by me. We stood at the entrance of the caves and waited. Lizzie and I looked at each other, and for a moment I thought she was going to attempt small talk, but thankfully she thought better of it and remained silent. I was beginning to get worried that McIntyre wouldn't show up when I heard a noise behind me. I looked back, and McIntyre was sitting on a rock. His helmet and shield laid on the ground next to him, the spear still in his hand. I suspect that if McIntyre made a few cosmetic changes, he would have looked every inch the hero of antiquity people thought he was. He had blonde hair that was cut very short and the face free of scar or blemish, with high cheekbones and an easy smile. I've been watching you for a while, he said. Just wanted to make sure you were alone. He stood and started walking towards us. I reached out to shake his hand when a high-pitched whistling gave me a very short warning of what was about to hit us. There was the sound of an explosion and then the sound of everything. It felt like every sound I had ever heard was replayed at deafening volume. And it wasn't just sound. Every sense seemed to be delivering every bit of information it had ever experienced. And then I blacked out. I awoke several minutes later, a few feet away from me was Lizzie, who was just waking up as well, but McIntyre was nowhere to be seen. I stood on slightly shaky legs and waited while my senses returned to normal. 
The only sign of McIntyre was his helmet, lying next to the rock he had been sitting on. I picked it up. It felt, it felt soft and fuzzy, like a pillow, but I realised that my senses were still confused. I squeezed it in my hands, and it was definitely very solid. Not sure of what else to do, Lizzie and I walked back to the train. We talked a little, really just checking we were both okay, and she reported similar symptoms to mine. What had happened to McIntyre? Had he escaped? Had someone taken him? Had the mayor been spying on us, knowing we would try and make contact with McIntyre? Something felt very wrong, but I couldn't place it. When we got back to the train, Lizzie said she would talk to the captain, while I just wanted to go to bed, even skipping my normal evening routine of a cocktail. I collapsed on my bed and tried to sleep, but I couldn't. My mind was reeling. Had I been responsible for the death of a superhero? We'll leave it there for now. Until next time, fellow survivors, I'm Richard Oliver, and this has been a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. At the end of the line was written and recorded by Richard Oliver. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostApocPodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. Today's advice is try keeping a dream journal to help understand your unconscious mind and to check that the dark wanderer hasn't slipped into your dreams as he prepares to take over your body.